you you were you reported wars for 20 years uh, and you are an ordained minister i was wondering um chris um where do you place god you've seen so many wrongdoings so many killings children being shot um families being torn apart uh, all those brutal murders and wars and still you are a minister how do you explain it to to yourself and where is god in the whole story right well we live in a morally neutral universe without question uh and some people said well you know 45 foreign reporters were killed in sarajevo <clears throat> um and people said well you know you survive for a reason and i said no that's just um obscene to say that when 2000 children died in that city So are you telling me that my life was somehow more important or more precious in the eyes of some divine being than a child? Um, I mean, I, I once asked uh, Daniel Berrigan, the great radical priest who baptized my youngest daughter, how he defined faith. And he said the belief that the good draws to it the good. Uh, even if empirically everything around you says otherwise. And, you know, the Buddhists call it karma. But in the Christian religion, we don't know where it goes. Uh, but I believe that's right. I believe the good does draw to it the good. Um, you know, some sociologists and psychologists call these phantoms, you know, these figures, moral figures that you carry with you, including like my father, who no longer are living. Um, but you carry that. I, I think morality can't be taught. I think it can only be shown. Uh, and so... Uh, I mean, I cover the revolutions in Eastern Europe, East Germany, Czechoslovakia, Romania. Mm -hmm. But when I was in Prague, uh, I was in Wenceslas Squares, uh, half a million Czechs. It was December, snowing. And uh, this Czech singer, Marta Kubasheva, came out on the balcony. Now, she had been the most popular, certainly one of the most popular singers pre-1968 in Czechoslovakia, and then when the Soviets invaded in 68, she sang this anthem of defiance called A Prayer for Marta. <clears throat> and when Dubček was overthrown and the, the pro-Soviet regime was installed, her recording stock was destroyed, she was banned from the airwaves, and she had spent the intervening years working on an assembly line at a toy factory. And she came out began to sing A Prayer for Marta, and every Czech in the crowd knew every word. Most of that crowd had had been born after 68. So there's a kind of example of how the good draws to it the good. Um, and uh, and I think that's a, a pretty good definition for me of what faith is. <clears throat> you, don't, you, you don't carry out what you, I mean, everything I fought for in my lifetime, going all the way back to the wars in Central America, <clears throat> on every single aspect is worse. But I don't think that invalidates what I've done. I was just wondering um, how, when you see a mass grave and you see children killed, uh, do you ever wonder where where is God? Uh, how do you how do you process such such events for yourself? Do you look at it just from a journalistic perspective? Do you separate it? Or well, at, at, at the moment, yeah, you have to. I mean, so when you're dealing with that as a journalist, you're numb. I mean, you may have an emotional reaction later, but you're attempting to gather information or write a story, even if the bodies are lying at your feet. So, yeah, you, you don't if you it's there is a kind of clinical quality, of that kind of work, which doesn't mean that it doesn't affect you later. But in the moment, 
you can't do your work if it does. There, there were moments, of course, when it was affected. So how do you process it? Um, well, because I, I understand, you know, let's go back to that notion of radical evil. I, how radical evil is real and those who stand up to face radical evil usually, uh, accept their own, uh, self-sacrifice. I mean, their own, their own uh, demise. Uh, and that often is the case, whether it's Oscar Romero and El Salvador, or Martin Luther King, Malcolm X. I mean, <clears throat> that persistent fight against radical evil often costs you your own life. But within the, within that circle of evil, there is always this light, this, this goodness. So for instance, when a shell uh, the, I was in Sarajevo was being hit with about 300 shells a day. There was no water system. So people had to gather around collective water taps and uh, the Serb gunners knew where they were and they'd wait and, until people congregated to get the water and they dropped these heavy shells, 155 howitzers or the Soviet equivalent and 90 millimeter tank rounds. I mean, really big stuff. And it would just blow people to smithereens. I mean, just eviscerate people. And uh, you could feel palpably these rings of kind of death emanating out from this uh, horrible atrocity. And yet at the same time, loved ones, families, friends would push forward to try and find people who were wounded and that they could save. And it was this kind of alternating wave. I mean, I, you could feel it. Of, 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 of life and death of, you know, let's call it good and evil. Um, and, uh, I, I was a prisoner in, uh, Basra. I was taken prisoner by the Iraqi Republican Guard after the first Gulf War and, and eventually turned over to the secret police. And that was very brutal <clears throat> and unpleasant. And I didn't know if they were going to kill me. And, uh, it was, I, the roofs and back, I was, I was in Basra, but then I was eventually transferred by the Republican Guard to Baghdad and turned over to the secret police, Mohabarat. And, uh, I hadn't eaten for 24 hours or had water or anything. And the roofs in Baghdad are flat. And, uh, I, uh, in the morning, the women and children would get up on the roofs and bake bread. And I speak Arabic and I yelled out that I was an American. We just bombed their country. And, uh, I was a journalist and I hadn't eaten it. And they, the mothers gave the children this bread to scamper across the roofs to give me. So when I think back on being held in that room, uh, by the police and I was roughed up and everything else, I invariably think of that memory. I don't know whether it's a psychological exit or defense or whatever. Um, but it was the power of that, of, of solidarity and of compassion and, um, overrides, at least from, for me, the psychological trauma that I endured in that cell. So, uh, you know, good and evil are real. Uh, it's an eternal battle. It'll never end. Um, and, uh, um, you know, but is there a divine being or a great watchmaker? I don't. I don't come out of that. <laughs> I've seen too much of how the world works. Yeah. Well, I think they gave you the bread. Listening to you, sir, because you speak Arabic, and you respect their culture by speaking Arabic. Which American speaks Arabic? 
especially uh, GIs in in uh, Iraq, they don't speak Arabic. They don't show that kind of respect. So if you speak Arabic, of course, you also you you gain respect very quickly. I think. Yeah, well, that's true everywhere. <laughs> I mean, that's why I worked so hard to learn the languages. Yeah. Of whatever conflict I was in. Yeah. So it, it's just common courtesy. Um, no, they didn't speak. The occupation forces spoke one language. That was the language of violence. That's it. They had no other way to communicate. And they weren't interested in any other way of communicating. What language did you speak in Bosnia? I did not speak Serbo-Croatian. Um, now, but that wasn't my fault. I was in Cairo and I was uh, supposed to go in the fall and I had a Serbo-Croat tutor in Cairo so that I could learn it. And then the ceasefire broke down in May and uh, the correspondent who was there did not want to go back in, uh, kind of understandable. It's, it was incredibly dangerous, and I had two days to get on a plane. Uh, and when you're writing, you know, six, seven stories a week, you don't have any time. Uh, so that was the one conflict I covered where I did not speak the language, and I and it hurt me. Uh, you know, you're 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 separated from the culture. I mean, the, I worked for the New York Times, so there was no shortage of translators and mm-hmm. all sorts of people to assist me, but it's not the same. It's not the same. And I'm sure the quality and the depth of your articles is very different from the ones you've written yeah, uh, speaking yeah. Um, uh, Arabic. Yeah. But of course, the uh, uh, um, Bosnia war didn't last for 20 years like the Iraq war did. So you didn't have that much time to prepare and learn a language. Well, the, I learned Arabic before. I learned Arabic because I was in the Middle East in 88. So I, I learned Arabic before either the first yeah. or the second Gulf War. Yeah, yeah. Well, I learned Arabic because I was going to be stationed in the Middle East. Yeah, for the New York Times. as a. Well, I was originally there for the Dallas Morning News, and then I was hired by the New York Times. Yeah. Mm-hmm.